All right, well, good morning. It's good to see you on campus with us this morning, and for those of you who are joining us online, I just want to say how thankful we are for you uh, being with us today, and we do look forward to the day when we will see you again soon. Um, I want to uh, share with you that at the end of the sermon, we are going to be taking communion together. We'll be observing the Lord's Supper, and so you should have received one of these uh, cups, communion packets, whenever you uh, walked in the doors. Our deacons are serving them uh, to people this morning, and so uh, whenever we take communion together, you'll actually take, you'll peel the top part off, uh, and we'll take the bread together, uh, and then after that, you'll peel the second layer, and we will drink of the cup together. Uh, for those of you who are maybe not that familiar to church, uh, communion is something that we do as believers uh, because whenever Jesus spent time with the disciples at his last supper, he asked them to eat of the bread and drink of the cup in remembrance of him. And so when we observe communion together, we remember uh, the work of Christ, his body being given for us, uh, his blood being poured out for us so that we uh, could be made Righteous. This is something believers do uh, together. So if you're with us and you're not uh, a believer yet, then I would just say to you that um, we're so glad that you are here. Uh, if you want to take that moment to pray or to really reflect on God in your life, then you're uh, able to do that. But I would say to you today that um, salvation is available to you today. Today can be the day where you submit your life to Jesus for the first time and you take communion. You observe the Lord's Supper for real for the first time. If you're with us online, then I would just encourage you to, uh, maybe you don't have one of these. I doubt you do laying around your house. Um, you can go grab some form of bread. Uh, you can grab, uh, you know, some kind of beverage and uh, you can take communion with us in uh, the moment that we do that. And if you're here today and it's your first time with us, uh, I just wanna say that we're so glad that you're with us or if you're online watching for the first time and I don't know what brought you here this morning, but we would love to know who you are. I would encourage you to text the word connect to the number uh, that is going to be on the screen, and uh, one of our staff members will follow up with you, and we'd be happy to answer any questions that you might have. Well, today we are answering a question as we continue in our series, Live Sent, and that question is, does the church have a mission? As we think about the Lord's Supper, as we think about observing communion together and, and what that means, it really should propel us then to, you know, what does the church do? What is shaping the church and how we live our lives and we organize ourselves? And so we should ask that question of this church or any church we're a part of is, does the church have a mission? Uh, today, to answer that question, we're going to look at the book of Acts. We're going to look at the formation of the early church, and I'll be reading from most of Acts chapter 4. But before we read from Acts chapter 4, I want to just kind of set up where we're at in history. So Jesus uh, spends, you know, three years with his disciples. They learn from him. Um, they see him work. And then uh, he's crucified. He, he rises, rises from the grave. And then uh, he eventually, after 40 days of being resurrected and walking around, around with them, he ascends into heaven. And so after he ascends to heaven, or before he ascends to heaven, he tells the disciples to wait for him in Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. So they wait on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. 
And they begin to speak in all kinds of different languages. But they're not speaking arbitrarily. They're speaking the gospel message in all kinds of different languages. And people hear them, and some perceive that they're drunk, but others receive the message of the gospel. And so at this point, 3,000 people profess faith in Jesus Christ. And so the church is born. They begin to organize together to do the commands of Jesus. But as they begin to organize together to do the commands of Jesus, more and more people are interested in what God is doing. And so in Acts chapter 3, on Solomon's porch, the, the disciples, Peter specifically preaches the gospel message after they heal a lame man, a, a lame beggar, a crippled man. And so they preach the gospel and more people come to faith in Christ. And we pick up there in Acts chapter 4, and I'll read now verses 1 through 4. It says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So you have the captains of the temple, the Sadducees. These are highly religious people, highly religious crowd, and they're enforcers uh, on their behalf. These enforcers were given authority by the Roman government to kind of legislate and handle their own people. And as the disciples are proclaiming the gospel in the crowds, they were greatly annoyed. And that was kind of what the, the, the Pharisees did, is they would listen to the crowd, whether it was Jesus or the disciples, and they would become greatly annoyed at what was happening. I think we actually have a picture that depicts the Pharisees amongst the crowd as the message of Jesus is being proclaimed. And if you don't get that, uh, it's because you're not on social media, and that's probably a good thing that you're not on social media. But so what happens is they, you probably should move off of that or no one else is going to listen to anything else I say. So what happens is they arrest them that night to deal with them the next day. But it says in the text, many of those were, who heard the word believed and the number grew to 5,000. So as they're arrested for what they're doing the number of believers, 2,000 more, are added, and 5,000 people are now Christians, which shows us that when you are on mission for God, God is using you for eternal outcomes, even if the outcome isn't what you hope for now. When you are on mission for God, God is using you for eternal outcomes, even if the outcome isn't what you hope for now. Even though things are difficult for us, we may not realize the impact that we are having. It has been said that God is at work in your life in a thousand ways of which you may be aware of 10 of those ways. And so when we live our lives sent, when we are living on mission for God and we are having gospel conversations, we may not see direct fruit of those conversations. We may not see direct fruit of the investment that we are making in people's lives, but you never know what is happening. Billy Graham once said that it takes about 21 people to share the gospel with someone before they trust Jesus, and he just happened to be the 21st very often. 
The reality is that, you know, we can't be living just to hope that someone always, or in, in, in expectation of someone to always come to faith in Christ from that conversation. But the truth is, it's often multiple conversations over multiple years that lead someone to a place where they trust in Jesus. When we're parenting, we can't parent for the moment. We have to parent for the long haul. We're hoping that our investment in the lives of our children, the conversations we're having with our children are paying off over time because they don't always get it the first time or right away. I say to some of you in this room, you're in that moment of your life where you're trying to, you're trying to live for Christ and trying to prepare for your future. You're trying to serve your church. You're trying to have a great marriage and you're trying to invest in your children and you have preschoolers and you do not see a lot of fruit in your season. But I'm telling you, the direction that you are headed in, the choices that you are making for your family and in your life, you will reap in due season. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not give up in the nights when your hands smell and you know why and, and, and things are crazy, but keep on. I'm so encouraged. I have have been as a pastor by, and I'll just be honest with you, if you're here on a regular basis and in community on a regular basis and trying to serve on a regular basis and you're in a season of preschoolers and you look around, most people in that life are not living their lives that way. And you don't say, I don't say that so you think you're better than those people. I just say it so that you would praise Jesus for his grace on your life and you would not grow weary. Um, if you're grandparents, you don't have as much interaction with your children probably as you did when you were parents, excuse me, your grandchildren as when you did with your parents and when you were parents. And so you just gotta hope that those conversations, that investment will pay off in your grandchildren over the years. It's been said that churches overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they're able to accomplish in 10 years. Year to year, we cannot hang our wealth and excuse me, our, our worth on our success year to year, but we say as we plug forward, we are amazed at what God can do over the course of a period of time. I know for me and, and my children and, and people I've done ministry with and, and people I've been you know, a, a pastor um, with, sometimes it's amazing to hear years and years after I've been saying something, them begin to say something that I've said. And you know, when I was younger, I was like, yeah, you got that from me. Why aren't you saying that, you know? That's why you're saying, they, they quote some other celebrity preacher. I'm like, but you've been hearing me say that for five years. And, and my children too, you know, oh, Mr. So-and-so said this. I'm like, yeah, I haven't been saying that to you since you were two. But the reality is now, I don't care. I really don't care. It's not about them recognizing me. You know, one of my mentors says, if you really wanna live your life for the kingdom of God, stop caring about who gets the credit and just be faithful and let God use you because we're really seeking to invest in the lives of other people. And it's amazing how when we are on mission for God, even if we don't see the fruit, even if we don't see the results, even if things aren't great for us right now, the eternal outcomes that could be happening as we serve the Lord. So God's, God's using them even in the midst of this persecution. Let's keep going, verse five. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all were who have the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? This is the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish ruling council, their high court. Remember, they had healed a lame man in chapter three, and this captured people's attention. And notice, they're not disputing what happened. They're just questioning the source of what happened. 
People cannot deny the work of God. They can only doubt the source of the work. People cannot deny the work of God in your life. They can only doubt the source of the work of God. It is evident that God is at work. And people just question whether that's God or or whatever it may be. I think this is why it is important that our story, more traditionally called our testimony, is a part of our investment in the lives of people, that we share with them how God has and is at work in our life. Because people can doubt whether the motivation is really God or whatever it may be, but they can't doubt what has happened in your life. This is why as, as an individual and as a collective church, we should be rich in good works. People can question our motivation, but they cannot question the work that God is doing through us. And our life should then reflect the word of God. And as we're transformed by the word and people see that transformation, they, they see what's happening and we can point them to why that is happening. In Colossians chapter four, verse two through six, Paul encourages them to live a questionable life, a life that causes people to question who we are, why we do things the way we do, and that we are ready to give them an answer. So in in the context of Acts chapter four, the, the religious leaders see the power. They see the change, and they're questioning them, how did you do this? And they answer, verse eight, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other, excuse me, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They say the answer is Jesus. You wanna know how we're living our life the way we're living? You wanna know how we're able to do the things that we did? You wanna know why this man stands healed? It is because of Jesus. But notice that Peter says, the Jesus you rejected. See, if people are questioning our life, it is not enough to just say, I'm living for Jesus. That's why. We need to say to them, I trust Jesus, and you need to as well. You need to trust him as well. And and the message of the scripture is that you have rejected him. That's that's boldness. Verse 13 says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, people apply this poorly often. I mean, I think often when people hear this, they think of the disciples and they think they were a bunch of bumpkins. I mean, like, you know, running around like the three stooges, like haphazardly doing things for God. But that's not what this means. It means that these men spoke with authority, authority of the word, authority from the law, authority of God, even though they hadn't been trained in the law. Even though they had not went to the schools that the religious crowd had went to, these men spoke as if they knew the will of God. 
and what it meant to live for God. They weren't seminary graduates, but they had spent time with Jesus. The text says they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, that does not mean that they recognized that these were people who were so spiritual because they had been with Jesus, which is something that is good and something that should be said of this. But what it means is they knew now, hey, those are those guys who followed Jesus around. Jesus was a criminal. And so they wanted to accuse these men of a similar crime of blasphemy. And they wanted to punish them because of the threat this was. Verse 14, it says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But what are they really gonna say? This man who everybody knew couldn't walk, he was a lame beggar who everybody saw as they came to the temple, is walking now. What could they really say? So it says, verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Now, why would they want this stopped? I mean, faith in Christ is clearly helping people already. You see a man who was lame, who could not walk, who's healed. So why would they want this to stop? Well, as long as people long for power, control, and autonomy, there will be opposition to the spread of Jesus' name. As long as people long for power, control, and autonomy, there will be opposition to the spread of Jesus' name. We see this in politics. And this isn't a partisan thing that I'm talking about. Because what I've noticed, and this is a generalization, but just about everyone wants to put their hand on the Bible, but almost no one wants to follow the Bible. Almost all of our politicians want God to give, grant them what they desire to see happen but don't want to look to God for what he desires to see happen. And when someone really begins to challenge whatever party it is, whatever leader it is with God's will, there's opposition because that threatens the power of that individual or that party. We see this not only in politics, but amongst the influencers of our day, you know, the, the celebrities of our day who have achieved a great deal of power and control and autonomy. And when you begin to talk about there being a higher power, when you begin to talk about a not generic but specific higher power who has desires for our life, that threatens what they have built for themselves. That threatens their independence. I would say that you often see this in spiritual leaders as well, in pastors as well. And unfortunately, some pastors, some churches have de-emphasized the priesthood of the believer, have de-emphasized every person getting into the word and studying the word for themselves, and have de-emphasized really the authority of every believer. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't those who are, are more uh, informed when they have opinions, but the reality is all of our opinions are 
valid. And the reason you see all people begin to push away from the authority of Jesus and his word is because it threatens that power, that control, and that autonomy, and it becomes where people's allegiance lies, not in a political party or an ideology or even in a church leader, but in Christ himself and his word. So verse 18, it says, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. But Peter and John answered them, where it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Whether or not we should be allowed to do that, whether or not you will arrest us, whether or not you will kill us for speaking about Jesus, that's for God to judge you on. But we stand before God for speaking about about what we have seen and heard. I believe in religious liberty. I believe the church should be an advocate for religious liberty. I believe that we should seek to be in any society where people are allowed to express their faith and publicly proclaim their faith. And I believe as Christians, we grant that right to people of other faiths as well because they deserve the opportunity to do that. We do not want to lord our faith over them. They should have that ability. You will hear me talk, especially from my friend on social media, a lot about religious liberty. But let's be clear, whether it's illegal or not to talk about Jesus, whether the church is free to express our faith or not according to our government has no implication on whether or not we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has no implication on whether or not we build relationships with people and point them to Jesus Christ. I've heard people say that they don't share their faith with their coworkers ever. They don't seek to live sent amongst those people because they're worried they will lose their job. Now, let me first say that typically the real problem is your boss doesn't want you talking about other stuff when you should be working. <laughs> and so if you're wasting their time, wasting your, your employer's time, whether that's the U.S. government or whether that's you know, a private business or whatever it may be, always talking about Jesus, that's not really persecution. That's you're being lazy. You need to work, okay? So that's not what I'm talking about. But people have legitimately said to me they can't build any relationships with people outside of work because they, they're just so worried of what might happen. And, and there have been very few, but examples of that actually coming back to haunt someone. But we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. That cannot interfere with us and the mission of God. We might have friends who say, I don't ever want to hear about your faith. I don't ever want to talk about that. But whether or not they want to be our friends or not is between them and God. But we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now listen, this does not mean that we walk around wearing a hashtag blessed t-shirt and a hat that says turn or burn or something like that. That's just arrogance. This means that we are people of faith and out of an overflow of our love for Jesus, our faith comes out. 
The disciples are saying, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, we're in a series called Live Sent. And part of the reason we're in this series is because we constantly need this reminder as a church that Jesus has left us on this earth to proclaim the gospel. And if you talk to any pastor, any church leader, you constantly have to challenge, it feels like, the church to be sharing about Jesus Christ. But that should not be so. We shouldn't have to come up with a campaign. We shouldn't have to have some emphasis. We shouldn't have to have some catchy slogans or vision statement. Sharing about Jesus flows out of knowing him and his teaching. Sharing about Jesus flows out of knowing him and his teaching. That's why we must be gospel-centered. We must constantly remind ourselves and preach the gospel message of Christ because Not because the world needs it, but because I need it. I need to remember every single day that I am far more sinful than I think, and I am far more loved than I could ever imagine. That when I look at my life and I see, I ask the question, do I measure up God? The answer is no. But when I look to God, the cross says, it doesn't matter that you don't measure up because I love you so much. I need that every day. If I am gospel-centered, then I am Jesus-centered. And I am all of, of the holiness of God come to the earth sinless, dying on the cross for my sins, power to raise from the grave. That's why we sing about it. That's why we talk about it. That's why we preach it to one another. And that's why we preach it to ourselves in the mirror because every day we wake up and we think, why God? And the only reason is because he wanted to. Not because of anything I've proven. Not because of anything I will prove. So we're gospel-centered, we're Jesus-centered, and therefore we're mission-centered. Because not only does God love us and prepare to be with us for all of eternity, but he has included us in the proclamation of that to a world that needs it so desperately. He has chosen to involve us in other people seeing who he is. So we do not take a moralistic approach to our faith in church and whatever it may be. We do not take a satisfied with education and debate approach, but we read the text, we dive into the word, and we walk away Proclaiming Jesus is Lord, meaning we owe everything to him, and so we want to submit to him everything that we do. So verse 21 and 22 says, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. The man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. It says, look, there's so many people They're gonna riot if we do something so we can't punish them because what happened happened to someone over 40. I mean, if someone in their 20s or 30s is healed, that's amazing, but someone over 40? Wow. And so it says in verse 23, they were released and they went back to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them and they started saying, man, it's just so hard with who's president right now. Man, these people around me are just, they're so negative. Man, I I just, I don't know what, how I can be faithful in the situation that I'm in. Man, here's all my complaints. This is why I can't live for God. No. It says when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, 
who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You can tell a lot about a person by what they pray for. I alluded to this last week. You can tell a lot about a church by what they pray for. In this moment, they prayed, God, we're in trying times. Give us more boldness. God, show your glory among these people. We should not seek to change our circumstances. We should seek godly character. We should not seek to change our circumstances. We should seek godly character. Now, does that mean if we have the power to change some of our circumstances that we shouldn't work towards it? No. Does that mean we shouldn't want to be healthier? That we shouldn't want persecution to go away, that we shouldn't want things to be easier. No, Jesus in the garden, he prayed, God, if there's any other way that this can happen, please let it happen. But nevertheless, your will be done. Jesus' desire in that moment was that his father would give him what he needed for the hour to do the will of the father. And our primary concern in our situation right now, whatever it may be, should be that God would give us what we need, that God would give us the character that we need, and that God would get glory in the situation. It did not matter to Peter and John and the early church that there was opposition. In fact, we know there will be opposition. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so when we pray, we think about this, we, we pray like this. Let me give you three quick things that should guide our prayer life. Number one, the word of God. They knew the word. If you look at this text, that cornerstone reference was a fulfillment of Psalm 118, verse 22. They saw that Jesus was that. They referenced the creation. They quote David, and their desires are for peace and encouragement and the glory of God, things that they knew to be part of the scripture. So to pray scripture, you have to know scripture. If you wanna pray according to God's will, then you have to know God's will. You see, that's what prayer is. Prayer is about desiring God's will. And, and people often say they want God's will, even praying people. But as scripture is continually neglected in your life, you do not sincerely desire God's will for your life. I mean, to say that I want God's will and to never learn what God wants for me, I'm not talking about in a day, I'm talking about over time, is like me saying, I wanna know how my marriage can be better and never asking my wife. It's like me saying, I want to go and be, do this for my career and never going to school and never getting any training for it. So let's stop fooling ourselves if we say we want God's will and we're actually never going to God 
and asking his will and reading what his will is. And so when we pray, we need to know the word and we pray according to the word. Another thing that should guide how we pray is that we're walking in the spirit. It said in the scripture that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and we just choose to walk into that. It's given to us. We are empowered. We should walk into that. I mean, Jesus said this would happen. In Acts 1.8, before he ascends to heaven, he tells them, wait on the Holy Spirit and you will receive it. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they are, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He has given us the power to carry out his will. And so we should know that in the way that we live our lives. And then lastly, is a passion for the gospel. They were passionate about the gospel going forth, about the message of Jesus going forth. It was not just an idea to them, it was good news. To be a Christian was not just, you know, how we want society to be. It was about the hope of humanity. That's what it was to be a Christian. It's the good news that God has saved me and you even though we did not deserve it and that we owe everything to him. And so again, we share the gospel because we are responding to that. And when we look to Jesus and he's our Lord, then we realize God has given us a mission and he's given us everything that we need for that mission. God has given you a mission and he has given you everything that you need for that mission. We'll read our last verses here in Acts chapter four. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And we'll stop there as the story begins to go on into specific situations. But this text tells us that they had one heart and soul. When Paul speaks to the Philippians, he tells them to be of one mind. And that is to humble themselves as Jesus had humbled himself, to put the interest of others above their own. That's really what it means to follow Jesus, that we would love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. It says in the text that none of them said that anything was his own, but they had all things in common. That is the Greek word koinonia, which means they were united. They were participating together. They were partners together in something bigger than them. When we take communion we're confessing together. It's not a personal thing. It's the church. It's the believers saying, hey, this is what we have in common. And so nothing is really ours because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, they sold houses. They gave away everything for the needs that existed among them. You know, often when you talk about giving, when you talk about tithing, people say, well, I, I don't really believe in tithing. I'm a New Testament giver. And I always like to say, okay, well, sell your house and everything that you have and give it to your church leadership. If you're really a New Testament giver, so you don't really mean that. But 
All joking aside, people who want the message of Jesus to be spread are generous to that end. People who want the message of Jesus to be spread are generous to that end. I mean, that's what happened in the New Testament. They said, hey, there are these needs to be met. There's this, this mission to be financed. And so we're gonna give radically to that. Now, it's about more than money. It's gonna involve a lot of your time as well. It's gonna involve a lot of time. If you really wanna invest in people who need to hear the gospel, it might mean really befriending them and walking with them and having multiple conversations with them and serving them. You might be able to disciple people who you're farther along than, to mentor them in the faith. And that's going to take some time. Maybe you need to be discipled by some other people so that you can grow and be where you wanna be in your faith. Maybe doing all these things at the same time. That involves time. It involves work to, to live like this. I mean, it requires serving, not just as a church body, but in our community, but even as the church body begins to reflect the community and the kingdom of God, it, it involves a lot of ourselves. You know, as a church, one of our desires is to see an increasing number of families who adopt and or are doing foster care as we care for the fatherless. And God is stirring. We have a number of families who are beginning both of those processes. You realize that that means we need more children's ministry volunteers. And we're gonna have some extra needs in our children's ministry because of that. And so we've got to say, do we want to be a part of that? Do we want to be a participant in that? A church that is really caring for these children or not? So it's about way more than money, but it's not about less than money. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That means that where we're spending our money, how we're spending our money is a reflection of our heart. And if we are generous people, then we are submitting to Jesus. We are saying, hey, you are the authority over every area of my life. And this is one of those areas. And I'm telling you, some of you, this is what's holding you back. It's your power, it's your control, it's your autonomy. Because to begin to give generously to where it hurts some, gives that up. It means Jesus is Lord. Now, if you have questions about how this church spends that money, those are fair questions. That, that's another issue. But whether or not we are obedient people to the Lord, that's a lordship issue for each and every one of us. Now, as we wrap up, because I asked the question, does the church have a mission? I need to answer that question. And the answer is no. The church does not have a mission. Reggie McNeil says this, the church does not have a mission. The mission has a church. The church does not have a mission. The mission has a church. God set out in creation that he would get glory for all of eternity. And the church has been invited to be a part of God's purpose, God's mission, if you will. You might say, well, if it wasn't for the church and how we get God glory, the rocks would cry out the glory of God. God's glory is not dependent on us. You see, this is the gift. God has included us in that. And so we should say, how has God wired me to that end? How can I live my life that way? Because the church does not do missions. We are on mission. We are God's people who are on mission. If you're familiar with the Spartans, 
They were an earthly kingdom, and all earthly kingdoms pass away at some point, earthly society. But one of the things that made them strong, I mean, stronger than their number as the Spartans, were that they believed as a philosophy that everyone was a soldier. And so you, you might have a career as a blacksmith or as a, a physician or whatever it might be, but you were also prepared to be a soldier as a Spartan. Whatever your vocation may be, your profession may be, the interests you have, the things you do in your life, all those things are secondary to the fact that you are a son or daughter of God who has been called to be on mission. And we fight a spiritual battle to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. So let me close by asking you three application questions this morning, or three application points, sorry. That's really not a question. I'm telling you what to do. Um, maybe it would have been nicer if I asked them in a question way but first I would just say this start giving generously toward the mission of God again some of you until your treasure is in heaven until money is not your master you're going to struggle with all the other stuff and so give God your heart and let it be reflected and giving generously towards the mission of God. The second one would be this, meet with three to five people about how God has wired you to be on mission. Now, we have one mission. We have, we have one thing in common. That's the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Our calling is not some rogue thing, you know? It's, it's this. But maybe God has given us certain skills. God has given us certain attributes. And, and, and you wanna say, how can I live my life that way? And I would encourage you over the next month, meet with three to five people and just talk about the way God has wired you, the experiences God has given you, the skills you have, and get counsel on how you can live your life in that way more. And then finally, number three is I would say this, start praying the word. When you pray together as a life group, as a family, personally, don't just pray based on the things that are around you, but read the word and pray that the will of God would happen. Now, as we take communion now, for believers, when we eat this bread, we remember Jesus' body, that Jesus, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us and was given for us so that we might be right with God. We might be in fellowship with God. We might be his body as believers, the hands and feet of Jesus. And we drink this cup and we remember the blood of Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins that has made us right with God, something we could never give on our own. And so we take communion and we remember that we owe everything to him and that propels us, that fuels us. And we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and we have heard. And maybe today, if you're honest with yourselves, you're honest with yourself, you've never trusted in that. Jesus is not Lord. You've been living for yourself. But today, the Holy Spirit, maybe something you can't explain, is, is convicting your heart to be right with God. And you don't become right with God by saying, okay, I'm gonna resolve to be better in 2021 or I'm gonna resolve to be a better man or be a better woman. You become right with God when you realize that the good 
man came and died for you to make you righteous. Something that we do not deserve, but is given to us. The wages of our sin is death, and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And maybe today, as we take communion in just a moment, it's the first time you ever take communion with Jesus as your Savior. Let me pray to prepare us for this. Father, I pray in this moment that you would be the center of this room. You would be the center of our lives. And as we see you as the king, we would bow before you and we would ask, God, is there any area of my life that does not measure up? And the answer is yes. And so, God, we would repent. And we would realize that the grace of Jesus, which saved us once, weeks, months, years ago, is alive and well today. His mercies are new every morning. And so when we observe communion, we're just so thankful for your mercy. And I pray that if somebody needs to come to you for the first time in their life, that they would do that now. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.